Football Season 6, Episode 6, Axe and Grind is over, but we are just getting started talking about it here on the Post Show Recaps Podcast, all about Better Call Saul. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm joined here by a man who's going to help me nip it in the bud, Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, when is the podcast happening? It happens today. Today, D-Day. It's D-Day. D-Day for this podcast. Maybe not for the end of the season. That's coming soon, but... For this podcast, it is D-Day. And Josh, are you, look, nip it in the bud. Which one is which of us here? Are we, who is the, uh, who is the influencer and who is the influencee? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm very easily influenced, uh, though I would suppose that the myriad podcasts that we produce on post-show recaps that then inspire certain people to go and watch certain television shows, I think uh, by definition, uh, definition, it makes me a bit of an influencer. Indeed, uh, I think I'm Indeed. like a, a like a self-deprecating influencer over here. Oh, you ought to find out a way to monetize that on the gram. <laughs> well, I do have a little book that I'm going to sell when I get out of this business and start up uh, my own veterinarian practice. Smart, smart. You yes. always have to have a little book in, in mind. Uh, no one can read book the book, though. Pocket. Yeah, there's lots of codes work happening. Tiny little pizzas that I've drawn. <laughs> the, the placement of the pepperonis indicates yeah. uh, different letters and numbers and symbols. Yeah. You thought Webdings was lit. Uh, wait until you see Wigdings. Uh, very good font. Very the good mozzarella font. zodiac. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. All right. So Axe and Grind. This is the penultimate episode of the first half of the final oh season so of Better Call Saul. It is complicated, but the distilled version of that is this is the second to last episode of Better Call Saul that we are going to get for months. Next week is the mid-season finale. We will be off uh, No Better Call Saul for uh, many weeks between next week and I believe it is uh, the second week of July. July 11th off the top of my head is when the show is going to return. So we are about to get some kind of really difficult ending to chew on i suspect antonio and then a really harsh wait between uh the next episode and uh the one afterwards and if the end of this one and if the substance of this episode antonio is any indication then yeah we are firmly with both hands on the wheel on bad choice road and it's terrifying and we made the choice to get there we turned our car around and headed in that direction so it is terrifying and we have speculated how much of the the plot that we've been encountering throughout this first half will we wrap by the end of the first half? And if uh, any indication from this current episode turns out to be true, it's a lot, much of it, most of it. I, I don't know exactly how much of the fallout of whatever Jimmy and Kim do, whether they succeed or fail, what may or may not happen to Howard, to the Sandpiper money with Cliff Main in the mix. And all of that, I don't know how much of the fallout of that we'll see, but it seems very clear the climax is coming. And I think the climax will be coming for Lalo Salamanca as well. So we are still in play of having a, a pretty wide open uh, final half of a final season of Better Call Saul. And that excites me just as much as the nervousness or the tension of what might be coming from this first half uh, fills me with dread. Uh, There's equal parts excitement and dread here. And in some of the ways, the dread is starting to turn uh, for me in that 
I, the dread for me was largely based on the fate of Kim Wexler. Uh, poor Kim Wexler. Oh, Kim Wexler right. caught up with this horrible man, Jimmy McGill. The narrative worm has turned, Josh. And so I'm no longer as worried for Kim Wexler as I am just excited to see where the story will go. She is very clearly making her own choices here. Uh, we never thought that wasn't the case, but whatever happens to Kim will be what she deserves uh, or no less than half of what she deserves. Uh, it if she gets away with it. it it is not something i'm i'm no longer really as worried about i don't know where you're at with this but well she's culpable i i do think that it's so funny that we're talking about these kinds of ideas of like am i am i still concerned for kim maybe not so much she makes the u-turn at the end of the episode but that's all within the same episode where we where given where we start where we start with this flashback with with kim and seeing the ways in which um she was just totally neglected by her mom the ways in which she acted out to get any kind of discipline from her mother and she gets the exact opposite uh so in the same episode where i really find myself feeling for Kim in a way that I never have before I am at the end of the episode like heartbroken disappointed um, upset and terrified and I do remain terrified for her because I care about her but there is no question that um, whatever's coming next she is buying you know or stealing as it were right uh, and the question that we had coming into this season of are we to be scared for Kim or should we be scared of Kim? I think that those two, I think that tension still exists, but right now the thing that maybe I wasn't fully holding on to and certainly grasped as we got deeper into this season is I, I could be scared for Kim. I can be scared of Kim, but I'm really scared for Howard Hamlin yes. uh, in a, in a very big way. And I, I thought that this episode did a really effective job of um, humanizing Howard and not in a way where it's like Howard Hamlin, isn't he such a good guy after all? Not necessarily. Who knows no. what's going on between him and Cheryl and Howard absolutely still seems like a bit of a butthead, um, but he's a human being, right? You know, he is a, he is a person with a, with a life that goes beyond the bounds of what we have seen on the show previously. And I thought that the scene with him and Cheryl at the start of this episode or, or close to the start of this episode did such an excellent job of just like solidifying that it's like, it doesn't matter if you like Howard Hamlin or not. He's not this evil guy. He's a person who's just trying to repair like his life with his wife and is trying to get his, uh, his, his career back on track and is trying to like fend off these not at all catastrophic thoughts, the very, very real onslaught uh, from, from Jimmy and little does he know from Kim as well that has previously terrorized his life. You get the sense has uh, caused uh, some major disruption between him and his wife. Uh, and here he is just trying to hold the pieces together. And he has no idea that this Mack truck is heading his way. Um, I don't think that that is actually what Kim was driving. Um, right. But, but you know, I, I think that this is a really compelling episode in that, yes, I think it underlines where Kim is at and where um, where we stand with Kim. People's perspectives are still going to vary, I'm, I'm sure, on where we are with Kim. But I think it it's interesting that it happens within the same episode that also just humanizes her more than I feel like uh, ever before with that uh, flashback scene while simultaneously really humanizing her opponent in a way that we haven't before. I just, a, a lot of words with which to say, I thought this was a terrific episode of the show. I really, really, really enjoyed this one. Those humanizing moments are so key. 
and you point that out. A very well-directed episode by Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, he's got a lot of great interviews. There's one out at Variety, Collider, uh -huh. The Hollywood Reporter with our, yes. our guy Daniel Feinberg. So there are some great uh, feedback from Giancarlo Esposito. F very funny, very entertaining about his approach, about what it was like for him. He was, it seems like, waiting at the ball, uh, perhaps waiting to be asked to dance uh, for several seasons, having directed uh, features before and having given said feature to Vince Gilligan and then not heard anything. Yeah, he tossed it out during, during Breaking Bad. He's like, I'd love to direct an episode. Didn't hear anything. Saw the process about how writers are often sort of given that uh, boost up and then heading into the final season, they came to him and he yes. was, you know, like a kid in a candy shop thrilled and i really i think his his desire for that and his love for it shows in his approach in this episode really well done but the the humanizing episode or moments in the script there's the moment of course as you said at the beginning with kim and her mother which we'll definitely talk more at length about there is the moment you're talking about with howard and cheryl i can't help but notice or wonder if their marital trouble started in the wake of what happened with chuck and howard right. blaming himself when we saw howard's end uh, or howard at his wits end in the bathroom loose tie eyes open couldn't sleep that's all on jimmy in a way <laughs> So is Jimmy the one who originally put Howard in the stir and put him in a difficult position at home? Is this plan going to break the dam in that regard uh, and make it even worse? Uh, are these people all basically uniquely responsible for the horrible situations that Howard finds himself in with, with very little knowledge on Howard's part as to their direct responsibility? Um, that's a crazy thing to think about. And then, of course, we have a humanizing moment with Mike and Kaylee, which doesn't add much to the plot, if anything, uh, but I thought was one of the best uh, Mike Ehrman Trout scenes in either show Breaking yeah. Bad or Better Call Saul in terms of just what it does for his character. It was a little mini 5-0 moment in this regard. Uh, so a lot of these humanizing moments in this episode uh, that was full of building uh, to a climax with the plot on a couple of different ends as we talked about earlier. So uh, filling an episode with humanizing moments, interesting and intriguing plot moments, I think a very good uh, setup for a penultimate episode for sure. All right, we'll talk it all through scene by scene. Of course, we'll talk it through again with our feedback show coming your way in just a few days. You can get feedback in bcs at postshowrecaps.com. That's the hotline, bcs at postshowrecaps.com. And do us a favor and just be courteous of the furniture that we've set up around yes, the hotline. Uh, no substances uh, <laughs> right. that you're wiping on the arms of the hotline. Yeah. We and already have our own water features. You do not need to create we them for us. We don't us. need you to add any additional water features, please. So that's bcs. <laughs> At postshowrecaps.com, please be respectful of the hotline. You can also tweet at us at Round Howard at AC Bizarro. How many Z's? How many R's? There's two Z's in it and the one R. Yes, uh, the same as the amount of water features that we want to keep around Antonio's Twitter. Uh, you can also <laughs> join us on the Patreon if you want to support the podcast directly and get in on the conversation. Patreon.com slash postshowrecaps is the way to support the show let's talk about axe and grind antonio and it does begin with this opening scene where kim as a child for the second time we are seeing a flashback with a very young king kim wexler uh, a full season later it was season five episode six wexler v goodman uh where we saw young kim for the first time and now we are seeing her again season six episode six uh and we are seeing the return of kim's mother as she has been called in because Kim has uh, has stolen. Uh, she has stolen some jewelry from the new Starlight collection. Oh, boy. Uh, Antonio. 
That's nice. I love the Starlight Collection. I'm still wearing it now. Uh, yeah, season four, episode six, season five, episode six. Can't wait for season six, episode six. I, uh, I, and season seven, episode six, and season eight, episode six. Mm-hmm. It's just we're on the Kim Wexler train. I would be curious to go back and see if in four, six, in three, six, in two, six, if there are key Kim moments. Uh, clearly, there are no flashbacks uh, like the two that you're talking about in five and six, oh, six. But maybe there are other Kim formative moments in there uh, that we don't know about or that we haven't clocked them. That will be worth revisiting over time. Uh, but yes, this flashback, of course, we met young Kim previously standing out front of her school late at night in the cold, waiting for her um, mother. For whatever it's worth, uh, season four, episode six begins with the flashback to the early 90s when Jimmy is in the mailroom getting the Oscar pool ready and a young Kim Wexler nerding out over uh, the the uh, Chuck McGill having huh. just done this incredible uh, legal feat. Look what uh, so we just a, did in real time. Yes, uh, a, a wide-eyed, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Kim Wexler in season four, episode six. Nice, nice. Yes. Uh, and a legal feat. That's what I'm rubbing right now as I nervously <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah. The yes. So this scene obviously mirrors that in a way because it's mother and daughter uh, and it's someone having disappointed the other in the previous scene in 506. It is Kim's mom who is late to the school and Kim is very disappointed and frustrated with her. She's probably been drinking. Uh, Mom claims I only had the one. I was down at the bar. You know, this seems to be a very common refrain. And Kim is very stubborn and says she's going to walk home carrying a musical instrument in the cold. Not sure if that was a viola she was carrying or not. Perhaps it was. Uh, it was a little on the nose, but who knows? Uh, but here, young Kim has disappointed, at least seemingly, her mother. Josh, I want to know from you, when mom comes waltzing into this scene with the bag and with the anger, were you ever convinced that she was angry at Kim? Yeah, foolishly, I was. Uh, I really was, all the way. Uh, I really thought that what we were going to get was like some kind of like um, hypocritical version of Kim's mother admonishing Kim for um, behavior that she herself probably wouldn't act, uh, or at the very least, this kind of admonishment and no moment of self-reflection of what have I done to lead you here, uh, to put you in the spot where you're acting out in this way. Um, I thought that that would be kind of the takeaway. And ultimately, it is, uh, just right. not in the way that I thought. Right. And not in the way that we necessarily thought either, right? Because just generally, I, I will say, when I was watching the scene, I thought, okay, this mom is putting on an act. I started to wonder if it was a two-man game or a two-woman game in this instance. Like, Kim is the one who gets the attention drawn to her. She's the one who gets whatever. And with mom carrying that big bag, it would be full of shoplifted material. Uh, and Kim was the subterfuge. Uh, that was not the case, obviously, but I think my concern in that regard, I guess, used to seeing Kim as part of a criminal duo, especially this season, I thought it was a, a two-person job, yeah. uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't, uh, but it certainly was not on the surface exactly what it seemed to be in terms of mother's disappointment, how did you get here, that sort of thing. Uh, the earrings and the necklace were what young Kim Wexler was after. Uh, subconsciously, though, do you think she was trying for attention? Do you think she was trying to get her her mother to notice her? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. I think uh, poor, poor Kim. This is what I'm saying is yeah. you really do get a glimpse into what she was like as as a child, just wanting um, some form of like actual loving stability and like loving stability in this case would be someone saying to her, ideally her mother, uh, saying, 
this is bad. This is why it was bad. And I'm sorry that we're in the situation that we're in, but we, you know, like, you know, we need to, we need to be here for each other and we need to act responsibly and all whatever version of that. And she doesn't get that at all. And I think that that's what she's trying to take. Uh, you know, maybe she is just at, at first doing the kid thing. And I'm sure all of that would be like deeply subconscious, but I feel like she's acting out because she has somebody in her life who is the the one as far as we know, right? Like the only, uh, you know, flesh and blood family that she has, as far as we can tell. I don't know that we know anything about her father or any siblings off the top of my head, do you? No, 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 no. You know, yeah. and so I think that she's looking for that emotional anchoring and she does get it by the end of the episode. It's just like heartbreakingly all of the wrong things for this young person to hear. Um, that yeah. like, nice, you got it. Unbelievable. Right. I, I didn't know you had it in you. And I think that that ends up being this huge underlining thing that's a bit of a eureka for Kim of people who no one, everyone has looked at Kim as this highly capable, unbelievably intellectual, um, really brilliant, but like respectful um, law abiding person who didn't have quote unquote it in her. Uh, and I think that she, uh, whatever that it is, it's probably more of a, I didn't know that you had all of those it's in you. Of, uh, <laughs> Pennywise. You know, yes. Uh, or uh, quarter intelligent as we referred to him on uh, the stranger things podcast this week uh, that she has uh, the ability to run these kinds of cons. She has the ability to be dishonest. She has a lot of anger in her. And I think that, a lot of this is starting to come out in the ways that she has been underestimated or, or misidentified over the course of her life and over the course of her run on Better Call Saul. And I think that there is this inexplicable quality to some of the things that she does in some ways. And I think that, that is because there is this sort of inexplicable quality to the way that she was emotionally raised and uh, what she was surrounded by emotionally as a young person. And I think that that really came to the fore in this cold open for me. And it fully explains does not justify, but fully explains why she makes the U-turn for me at the end of the episode. That she is this, from day one, like, to the root, emotionally damaged person. And it breaks my heart. Uh, right. it, just, it just shatters me. Uh, well, wa watching this episode again the second time, um, knowing where it ends and seeing um, this opening scene, uh, really, it was really, really crushing to go back and check out. It's we have long tracked where like what is Kim's reason? Like you said, she has a certain unspeakable like a je ne sais quoi about some of this stuff and her her telling Jimmy seasons ago, you can do it, but I don't want to hear about it. I can't hear about it. Uh, it did always make it seem like she was uh, ethical, better than us, yet one of us in a way uh, rising out of the mailroom on grit and, and determination and ethics and all of the right things. And it was that sense of justice, that sense of doing what was right by the law that motivated her to push away from Mesa Verde, that motivated her to push into this uh, defense job that she's sort of carving out uh but what we didn't necessarily know and what we saw at the beginning here is that lies and love have been linked for kim yeah. since she was a child uh yeah. that she is the one who reaches out for her mother's hand as they leave the department store and are rounding the corner in a very similar way to the way that uh, Jimmy and Kim rounded the corner right before chicanery, walking away from uh, Chuck and Howard, having baited them into playing the tape. Uh, and it's, a, it's just a very similar way the shots are composed. And I, the echoes of that 
rang throughout my head as I was thinking, like, this is the way that Kim relates to the people that love her or that she loves. Like she bases these loves are for her love is formed on lies or it is juiced up by them. And this scene made that very clear The the love she was seeking from her mother was was ultimately rooted in uh, the fact that her mother and she could share in this idea that they put one over on poor Mr. Pearson. Uh, there are other reveries here, of course, from other Better Call Saul things. Josh, I don't know how much you were thinking about it, but I was thinking about wolves and sheep this entire time. Sure. Uh, Mr. Pearson, very much like Mr. McGill. You know, I don't have to call the police. We really just don't want to see it happening. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, don't worry. You don't need to pay. It's a it's a very Mr. G Jimmy, Jimmy and Chuck's dad, Mr. McGill, uh, sheep moment as these two wolves uh, are forming in his office uh, and not for nothing. But from a talismanic standpoint, those are the earrings that Kim Correct. wears throughout Better Call Saul. John Carlos right? Esposito points that out, that when you uh, in the in the in the vet's office, when we see uh, Better Caldera, Dr. Caldera, for probably the last time, I would guess you would uh, think. Uh, that she um, uh, she's wearing those same earrings. And those are the earrings that have followed her all the way. So uh, I don't know uh, when uh, uh, when Lost uh, caved and did the Jack's tattoos episode, it was much maligned Antonio. So I would have probably voted against the kim's earrings flashback but yes. i'm glad that we got it i think that they did a better job than they did with jack's tattoos we found a way to make it uh, speaking of better than us yeah one of us we found a way uh, to, to they found a way to really make it i think resonant uh, and as a, a marker uh, that that reflects something not just the starlight of it all uh, but reflects this formative moment uh, for Kim uh, when she and her mother had a bonding moment, a gift from her mother, uh, a very nice, beautiful thing that was, in fact, stolen and lied about and all of the rest. Uh, speaking of echoes or things that Kim carried forward from her mother, got to give a shout out to Beth Hoyt, the actor who plays Kim's mother. I remember this from the first appearance yes. of Beth Hoyt. Uh, Talking the, about a learned behavior as yes. we're about to get into the Insider Podcast Season 5, Episode 6, Wexler v. McGill, when uh, when young Kim makes her first appearance on the Insider Podcast for that episode. I remember them talking at length how Beth Hoyt came to set essentially having studied Ray Seahorn's performance as Kim and ready to mimic some of her vocal mannerisms so that there was this through line from mother to daughter uh, that Kim his her way of speaking, her way of her approach to conversations, her emphasis on certain syllables and words uh, was mimicked by Beth Hoyt the first time and really, I think, weaponized here and weaponized in a way, as you're pointing out, that carries through in a character moment. Yeah, um, that's impressive. Uh, I think that she really shows uh, just the amount of Kim Wexler that is in her performance and how that is being modeled uh, by the actress and then the way in which that is being modeled by the character of Kim from her, like the way in which this is also cyclical, both in terms of like the actual story, but then in terms of the process of making the story, I find that fascinating, Antonia. Yeah, and and it's just it. The fascinating part for me is that this sort of comes. I don't believe it was from a note that was given to Beth Hoyt at any point. Uh, I can go back and listen to before the feedback show the uh, five oh six insider where they talk about this and their introduction to the actor. But 
I think it was of of Beth Hoyt's own volition that this was a choice that was made. And from this choice, there is such depth of character that flows. Uh, and as you're pointing out, connects mother to daughter, connects learned behavior to learn uh, to learn behavior or to actual behavior in this case with Kim. Uh, and it happens with vocal mannerisms. It also happens with criminality. Uh, it happens with a sort of a loose view of I know best or it's OK when I do it uh, or I the, the, or, or the wolves and sheep of it all. I'm right. in position to determine who is going to be punished and who's going to get punished, etc. So that's all there. Uh, I did not listen to the lyrics from the song The Reflex by Duran Duran that comes on the radio. I suspect there's some connection there as well. I'm surprised. Uh, I just kind of figured you had all of Duran Duran's songs memorized. Oh, I erased them long ago. I actually sketched my brain and erased uh, all of Duran Duran. Um, uh, I don't know why gone, I did that. You've gone too far this time, but I'm dancing on the Valentine. I tell you somebody's fooling around with my chances on the danger line. I'll cross that bridge when I find it. Another day to make my stand. Oh, whoa. Uh, I don't know why I had to read the oh, whoa. Oh, I'm about to read it again. High time is no time for deciding if I should find a helping hand. Oh, whoa. Why don't you use it? Try not to bruise it. Buy time. Don't lose it. Yeah, I think a lot of this uh, tracks to the Kim Wexler storyline. Definitely. I think you could spend a good amount of time reading the lyrics while listening to The Reflex by Duran Duran. You're like, oh, gosh, oh, no. I'm on a ride and I want to get off. Yeah, me too. Yeah, but I want to stay on. Uh, the yeah. suspense is terrible. I hope it lasts. I hope it lasts. Uh, uh, last yeah, one week. At least. This is uh, it's just it, it, it was just a really smart way, I think, to reset some of this. It relenses how we look at uh, the whole Kim situation with Jimmy. I think I am uh, uh, very strong uh, in approval of that because I've not liked the the whole discourse of like Jimmy makes Kim a certain way. Uh, I grew weary of it in my own thinking uh, and, and kind of pushed past it because I don't like the idea that Kim had no agency here, that Jimmy was in the, just the beginning of it, uh, or Jimmy was the impetus. It turns out that Jimmy is resonant with something that is deep in Kim Wexler's bones. Uh, and yeah. that fits, that adds up. Uh, you, I love all that. Uh, it, it is something that we had talked about on a subtle way. Like it, it's got to be more. There's got to be more to it. It isn't just like, why is she stay with him? Why we don't have to ask those questions when we have some crumb of information like this in the form of one scene. I just think really good storytelling, really sharp, really smart way to open this episode. And it, it reframes a lot of what's going on. Uh, and I, I think you're really sharp to point out the way it connects to, in terms of mirror to the end of the episode, where Kim is and the choices that she makes, uh, carrying it through like that, it becomes a heartbreaking scene as well. So just top stuff here. Really, really glad to see this scene at the beginning of the episode. We get to our first scene post cold open, and it is uh, a day in the life uh, with Howard Hamlin uh, as he uh, he's you know picking out his clothes for the day amongst his lavish wardrobe. Uh, he's got the 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 shoe buffer. Uh, I don't know what that thing's called, but it's great. <laughs> uh, he's just buffing his shoes. It's called a, a gom jabbar, I think. I don't. <laughs> yeah, stick the, your foot in. Yeah, he can't take it out. Otherwise, right. he'll get stuck with the poison needle. Exactly. Uh, so he's putting his his suit jacket in the car, and then he is painstakingly making this latte. Uh, who knew that Howard Hamlin was a master of latte art? Yeah. Uh, as he is able to to create. Um, a really beautifully rendered peace sign in uh, the coffee for his wife, Cheryl, 
who is played by Sandrine Holt, uh, who you will know from many, many shows, even if you don't know the name. She was recently on The Expanse, House of Cards. She was in 24. Antonio, you and I know her best as Madam Executioner for Mr. Robot. Uh, So the second that Sandrine Holt showed up, I was like, ah! Uh, Leo DiCaprio at the at the at the screen pointed at the screen. Stay away from Howard's uh, the outdoor pool there. Uh, yes, Sandra. yes, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, Howard. She, who knew? Who knew? She, Howard is a barrister. I didn't know he was a barista. She doesn't too. care. She yeah. doesn't care she that he's no, both a right barrister and a barista. <laughs> <laughs> right into the go cup. Yeah, yeah. She goes it. Uh, yeah. It brutal. is brutal. That was uh, not the most brutal thing that happened in this episode, but I think that that speaks more to the brutality of the episode than it does to, uh, you know, this not being a brutal act. We we see him do all of that. And that's the moment for me, uh, the first moment anyway, that's like, it doesn't matter if you like Howard or not. He's a person. He's just trying right now. Like, this is just a guy who is trying. Can a guy just live a life, you know, and he's just trying to live. Uh, and he is uh, under attack as he is already like, you don't need to attack me. I am already under attack, uh, you know, is, is the big energy that's coming out here as his, his life is clearly on a little bit of a razor's edge and maybe honestly has already fallen off. And, and he's trying to activate the parachute when it's, uh, perhaps a little too late, uh, because Cheryl doesn't seem to want anything to do with um with how there's this fundraiser coming up we could go together if that's easiest no i'll just go you know she's got the travel mug and she barely uh cares at all about the jimmy stuff when howard says uh it's not over the guy with the bowling balls i think it's getting worse you're gonna hear something you'll see something but whatever it is i'm handling it i'll put an end to this whatever it takes and her only response is an unemotional duly noted and that's it brutal Sleeping so sad and lonely. Yeah, Howard sleeping in the guest house or somewhere. Uh, The mattress hasn't been changed. He's we saw that Uh, he's getting ready separately, going out to the car, hanging the coat in or the suit up and then coming into the main house. So he has uh, relegated himself to the outdoor quarters or uh, to sleeping separately. And it just makes you realize when you say razor's edge in terms of trying to keep it together uh, when he loses professionally, if he loses, if they get what they want with Sandpiper, Jimmy and Kim, uh, they're crushing a man who has precious little to crush. We know he's going through therapy. He's doing his best. He has gotten back on his feet. HHM is doing OK. All those things uh, are a testament to Howard and the work that he's done and the growth and the progression that he's made since we saw him falling apart after feeling responsible for what happened with Chuck. You take the rug out from under him with Sandpiper. You let Jimmy and Kim win. You turn Cliff Main and others of Howard's colleagues against him. You dilate his pupils up and make it seem like he's coked out and crazy right. and gaslight him into oblivion. Uh, where does it end? Uh, what 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 gets blown up? Uh, what gets destroyed? What is the ending for Howard Hamlin? Is it the same as Chuck? Are we pushing him to a Chuck-like blow-up? And then we know what happens in the aftermath with Chuck. Uh, The house burns down. Uh, And not for nothing, if you want to talk parallels, uh, Chuck McGill himself, a lawyer, a brilliant lawyer at HHM, a very successful lawyer at HHM, problems on the home front, uh, separated from his his wife, uh, divorced maybe. Trying to make her uh, feel better about him and his his growth over a nice, uh, a beautifully cooked meal. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not latte art, but it's, you know, not terribly far off. Kind of salted Branzino, right? Yeah, like there's a a lot of effort that goes in. Those don't pair well, the Branzino and the coffee, but I think that the (laughs) the parallel tracks do for sure. I think that you're right to call them out. 
Yeah, and so we know how that ended, right? And the 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 real nervousness that I have, of course, comes from how it's going to end with Howard. Howard's end. Uh, that's the part that I fear the most, knowing what we know about Chuck, seeing those parallels uh, with Rebecca uh, and with Cheryl, uh, and seeing how that could play out. Uh, that's the that's the main concern I'm having. It's like, okay, this is real echoes of Chuck McGill, uh, high end, fancy, uh, the preparation, the love that goes into it. Uh, the difficulty of of maybe winning back a partner, uh, yeah. keeping things under the vest a little bit, and having those things, and then of course Jimmy McGill at the root of it all, right? Jimmy McGill behind so much of what's happening to Howard. Jimmy McGill directly involved with exposing Chuck to Rebecca and bringing her to the courthouse and chicanery, uh, having that be the indignity that uh, that Chuck has to fully suffer. What having her see his breakdown? Uh, the connections are there. I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit concerned about all of that. So um, that's where I'm at with it. And and I thought, uh, again, humanizing scenes, very important, very valuable uh, to set the stakes uh, before we deliver on what's what the stakes are for this plan. Uh, set the stakes emotionally with Howard in this way. Uh, a really good uh, stop down uh, to see Howard with Cheryl, Cheryl here and, and set those stakes. So I uh, I, for one, Josh, I'm, I'm super concerned for our guy Howard Hamm. I am too. I, I think that in laying out all the ways in which this storyline does closely um, uh, echo what happened with Chuck in the end, my my real hope is that at least some of these characters are able to break out of their cycles. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it has a better ending for Howard. I will stop short of a happy ending for right. Howard uh, because I'm not so sure what that looks like for any of these characters. But an ending where you get to live and live your life uh, would be happy enough. Uh, so... Uh, hopeful, hopeful. I'm putting a lot of stock and faith and hope in Jimmy giving Francesca some card and saying, tell him Jimmy sent you when you need a lawyer. Wow, we're lucky that Jimmy didn't uh, weaponize that card, uh, considering what we see in Germany <laughs> in this episode. Yes, uh, there there could have been a razor blade behind yeah. that card to Francesca yeah. uh, mm -hmm. that Jimmy used to cut open the wall. Uh, yeah, I am. That's what I'm. That's where that unfortunately is my biggest uh, plant uh, stake or, uh, you know, plant a flag piece of hope that Howard Hamlin makes it through is that Jimmy refers Francesca to somebody that he says, tell him Jimmy sent you for legal counsel. God hope that's Howard Hamlin. My uh, concern there, and I don't want to burst any bubbles because I still have hope for Howard Hamlin beyond this is given uh, Francesca's very memorable role in getting the conference uh, call number and the, and the dial in uh, to the, to the HHM, uh, you know, meetup sure. for Sandpiper that the name Howard Hamlin would certainly ring bells uh, for Francesca. She wouldn't need any kind of like, call this guy, he'll help you out. Uh, she would know who Howard Hamlin is. Yeah. So I think that that points more towards like a Bill Oakley. Uh, I will rewatch that Howard scene Hamlin. before yeah. the feedback show and let you know my thoughts on Please. your piece of belief there. Please do. I, 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 I don't want to. Uh, I, I would prefer that you're right. I would prefer that you're right. Because uh, I think that that speaks well for Howard's uh, A, survival, uh, and B, uh, that, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe he, blessings in disguise, I don't even want to call yeah. this that. But, you know, like, you know, maybe he's going to get this other shot at life to, you know, right. he has talked in the past right. about, I, I was born into this. This is my lot in life. Uh, I wanted to branch out. 
there was no way given the life that I was born into and the family I was born into that I wasn't going to be able to do anything other than be the second H at HHM. Right. Uh, you know, does he get a chance to, to live a different life, to, to make his own kind of music, to bring it back to Lost? Uh, speaking we'll of speaking of that, uh, that's what the vet is trying to do, right? That's what right. the vet is trying to do. And we see that in the next scene in the episode. Yes, uh, there's very quickly Howard meeting with the private eye. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot about but I, that. But I mean, I think that uh, there's there's not a ton to talk about. The here. only setup with that is that the PI witnesses yep. uh, Jimmy taking out what appears to be a large amount of cash. Ballpark of 20 grand. Yeah. Seemingly uh, to suggest later when there are pictures of Jimmy handing an envelope to the double judge. Right. That uh, Jimmy's bribing the judge in some way, the, right? The so mediation we're just, judge. Yep, we're we're connecting those dots. So Howard sees that, and that's big for Howard. We then do go to the vet. Uh, return of Doctor Caldera. I imagine a curtain Caldera uh, here. Uh, some, I mean, maybe, maybe there may be one Caldera scene left, but it seemingly might be a, a curtain Caldera. Yeah. Well, someone's going to need to get that little black book. Yep. Uh, and one imagines that that is uh, that is going to fall into the hands of uh, a certain uh, stargazing mercenary that we may or may not uh, know decently well at this point, and has a lot of guys around town. Uh, so I think that that may come into Mike Erman trout's possession could be we, we, i think we see it i think we see it at the beginning in the days of wine and roses in one of the boxes it is if we see it i think it's like maybe a three second thing where we flip open the book we see code in it, it gets thrown into a box so i don't know i i the the only thing is that the of course as uh as we get into the scene here uh we see the vet with a, a little dog uh and unrelated and we follow the vet from that little dog to his other patient, who is uh, Saul Goodman, who is Jimmy McGill. A uh, very cool shot tracking the the vet going from room to room. Just getting uh, intravenous caffeine. Yeah, just getting some kind of caffeine. Some kind of like, Jimmy's like, well, it itches wherever you applied it. Uh, and I don't know if that's a, a topical thing uh, or if that's a shot. You can imagine if it's something that was rubbed on uh, or applied through the skin. Um, that could be something that was easily done to Howard. You could have a Kubi. You could have a Huel. You could have someone like that just bump into Howard, shake his hand, maybe. Do you uh, think that might that be, along. if it's topical, some kind of Lumen Industries product? <laughs> could be. Uh, yeah. Could be. That would be very topical. Uh, that would yeah. be right on right on point. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it could be. It could be. That would be great. That would be great. I'd love uh, to gonna, see that. It's going to make Jimmy feel like he's on two Red Bulls on an empty stomach. Uh, it yeah. should last about an hour or two, and it won't show on a blood panel. And clearly they're testing it out on Jimmy as Jimmy continues to be like the crash dummy version of Howard Hamlin. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, this this uh, you and I seem to be in lockstep on this, that they're going to try and basically drug Howard to make it look like he's all coked out. Right. Um, uh, to, you know, further uh, to further discredit this man. Um, and uh, Dr. Caldera is going to tell them that uh, basically the, the TLDR is I love being a vet. I hate being a crook. I'm done being a crook. Uh, he's going to sell his little Zodiac killer black book that has all of his criminal contacts on it. And he's going to get out of town. And a very important piece of the puzzle falls into place here uh, as there is a business card for best quality vacuum. Yep. Uh, very big deal uh, that we see this. And Kim sees it. Kim's the one who clocks it. Kim pulls it right out of the book. They don't know what this is. They have no idea what this right. is. Right. Um, and it is absolutely possible that like this isn't going to be something that goes off for Kim necessarily. I think that certainly it 
very much angles you towards that if the theorizing is Kim is going to do something or be involved in something so bad that she needs to be um, uh, removed from town and removed from her life and positioned elsewhere. Um, how they tell that story without Robert Forrester is a little hard for me to imagine, both because I don't want to imagine it, but also because I just don't know how you tell that story without that character. Um, but I think that the other piece of it could just be as simple as like, the you know the 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 assertion of the black book if it does fall into Saul's possession as you're noting from the priester eggs of the very first scene of this final season that could be enough uh, of a how did he get the um, information on the vacuum cleaner is he's got the little black book and he knows everything about the CD underbelly of Albuquerque at this point right we had been previously believe uh, under the belief that it would have had to have been used for Saul to know. Uh, about it or how to use it where you know of course we've been wondering how did he find out how did he know who who used it and we've pointed to the fact that mike did not know about it throughout the course of breaking bad so this would have had to have been an outside of mike thing and mike wouldn't have been involved because if mike had known i can get out of the game and i can get a, a, a second i can get out with this easy service uh, there were a lot of times where mike would have just slipped away uh and they had opportunities they talk about that a lot in the second half i think of the final season of breaking bad on those insider podcasts that this was a thing that they felt a little bit hamstrung by uh which is what do we do with the fact that maybe mike if he had known about this there were times when he definitely would have uh, sent Kaylee and Stacy away or taken it himself. And the answer is that he didn't know. And the question then is how, and here we are, uh, we are in the fact that it was in the vet's little black book, that the vet was involved. The vet was the conduit, uh, the connection. It still has not the, as you're pointing out, the circle has not been squared as it will. Uh, we have not closed all closed the loop on how do they know what to say to the guy? How do they know that's the service that's provided when you call the guy? Um, I don't know if the vet will explain that at some point. Will it actively be used or is it just something Saul knows about because he acquires it? However, he gets in, in, involved with the black book. Uh, that remains to be seen. But uh, the fact that Kim clocked it, I think, is certainly significant. And yep. maybe yep. a little bit of bait, maybe a little bit of bait for us uh, wondering if Kim's the one who will use the service first. Certainly, I guess I, I would be fine if she doesn't uh, like I would be. This would be enough for me that like, OK, so Jimmy's looking at his future right yep. now. You know, yeah, uh, you know, this is this is uh, Jimmy's looking at Gene right now. You know, this is Jimmy as Saul Goodman looking at his future self. And right. that is powerful. So yeah. all all on its own, Jimmy discovering the future. He's time traveling right he's now. He's time traveling. Is yes. huge, is yeah. enormous. And like my like uh, my my stomach just like lurched when I watched that scene, when that when I was I again, DiCaprio pointed, you know, it's just like, oh, gosh, uh, that reaction that it elicited for me. Um, is the kind of thing where this show is somewhat miraculous that it is a prequel that is so effectively using the endpoints um, as uh, just like exceptionally utilized um, uh, weapons of suspense. Uh, and so this card, again, another lethal freaking card in this yeah. episode. Yeah. Uh, really, really, really good. So if it's used for Kim, that's great. It's set up now and that's very good. Um, if it's not, it's still enough for me that Jimmy uh, is now in possession of the thing that's going to uh, turn him into Gene someday. 
along those same lines because I think that's a great thing to point out. And I think you're I think that's uh that just basically causes me to to observe that the other thing that's happening here in terms of seeing the future could be uh when Jimmy sees the book and the vet talks about wanting to get out of the game, the vet leaves the room and says, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Jimmy says, like, why are why is he doing this? He this is passive income with minimal risk, uh Jimmy says about the book. And Kim says he knows what he wants. She says as she ponders into the middle distance uh, and that to me, the passive income with minimal risk says that there's a possibility that if Jimmy does acquire the black book, that he essentially makes a lot of off the books money as Saul Goodman as the vet, basically, right. as the guy who's connecting guys. Let's let us not forget that what he does for Walton Jesse is he doesn't know a guy, but he knows a guy who knows a guy. Right. right. Uh, and that's the kind of like connected to the criminal underworld guy that can bring in Huel, that can bring in Kubi, that can work with all of these people that he does throughout Breaking Bad. It also it kind of speaks to the fact that maybe a lot of what was building that mansion that we saw at the beginning of Days and Wine and Roses wasn't your one off uh, Hell's Waiting Room, Saul Goodman cases uh, with various injuries and maladies and what have you. Uh, maybe it was a lot of this passive income with minimal risk type work uh, that Jimmy obtains from the vet via the black book. So he is seeing his future maybe in more ways than one. And Kim's remark about he knows what he wants is fascinating to me because, of course, that's the path that she is on. Uh, pursue what you want. Knowing what you want is very important. Uh, and Kim has sort of set what she wants in terms of this legal practice out as a goal. And she's going to go for it by any means necessary uh, or uh, by the end of the episode, have to choose the means necessary that she's going to pursue her goal. Uh, but she knows what she wants as well. And what she wants is what's putting her on the road that she's on. It's fascinating, Antonio, because as Jimmy McGill is looking at the future in this card, the certain future that he is going to be uh, needing this service at some point down the line that's going to get him to uh, Cinnabon, uh, to to Omaha, as it were. Not the beach, uh, Antonio. No, no, not Normandy. Oh, my gosh. Um, that uh, Kim is going to be looking at a possible future, uh, a, a universe that she will not go to, it would seem, um, but a possible path forward when Clifford Maine is going to come and visit her at work and bring up the idea of the Jackson Mercer Foundation um, that is going to be like this, uh, I don't know, you can probably speak to something like this better than I can. Seems like a highly prestigious organization that is going to be right in line with what she wants to do for her pro bono clients. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is the... The Jackson Main Foundation. Oh, sorry, the Jackson Mercer Foundation. I just wanted to get another look at you. Uh, the idea of this, the possibility of it, is sort of the brass ring I think so many people would be reaching for in Kim's spot. And here, through virtue of her dogged legal work, Cliff Main observes her, of course, doing yet again more Kim Wexler uh, jujitsu with regard to the defense that she puts on uh, with the Albuquerque Isotopes air freshener, not the same one uh, that Jeff had in his cab yeah. in the gene scenes, but probably the same design at a minimum, uh, right? It's certainly an echo of that. Uh, Another glimpse the into design. the future. Yeah. Another glimpse into the future, right. Uh, and Kim doing a great job with that defense, uh, doing some work to determine how many people have them, how many times is this officer, like a lot of very detailed work that Kim has done to, to try to determine the pretext for this stop and whether or not it was constitutional. 
and everything that goes with that. Try to get the stop thrown out and thus get the evidence that was obtained from the stop thrown out. Uh, Kim just seems to be doing very good work for her client. Cliff Maine, unbeknownst to Kim, witnessing this and then Cliff Maine dropping this hammer on her. Lieutenant Governor, uh, this is this is opportunity that could fund everything that Kim could hope to do uh, that could make it legitimate. This is like this. Is, I think I think of the Godfather all the time, but this is the whole like senator governor. Like I didn't want you to be a gangster. I wanted you to get into the legitimate right. world yep. and have real power. Here's Kim having the opportunity to hobnob with the lieutenant governor of New Mexico, with directors of this foundation, this prestigious foundation from the East Coast, uh, who could invest in her as an early like pilot case uh, or proof of concept for their West Coast work uh, who could get involved directly with the state uh, who knows where that ends who really knows where that ends it could end with senator wexler like there there's a there's a world where this is a springboard that allows kim to change the world or at least her corner of it uh, and a legitimate one one that does not vest on anything so uh so tenuous as a retired judge's broken arm uh, this is a real thing that Cliff Maine is bringing to her. Cliff Maine, Josh, like this silent uh, series regular of Better Call Saul <laughs> season six showing up yeah. in almost every episode here. Listen, uh, we lost one Michael Mando so that an Ed Begley Jr. could rise. <laughs> Isn't that always the way of the world? Isn't that always the way of the world? Unfortunately, the old white guy yet again, mm-hmm. yep. right He's there back. in the driver's seat. He's back, finally getting his chance. Finally uh... getting his chance. <laughs> After all these oh, years. No. no, I uh, love Ed Begley, and I'm glad for every yes. Cliff Maine that we yes. get. Of course, selfishly, I re- I wish it was uh, our guy, Dennis Boutsikaris, and there was some Rich Schweikert involved here. Yeah, I just put a bow like, on that. I, I do think that she's like, uh, he's given her all of the grace that he ever needs to, you know, and I think that he has, he has, uh, he has seen, he, she, she had an offer from uh, from uh, from Schweiker and Coakley once upon a time that she turned down. He was very kind, even after she Freudian slipped him as Howard Hamlin, uh, as opposed to the caffeine uh, slip that is uh, potentially about to happen. Uh, she yelled at him in the office in this really horrible way in front of absolutely everybody. And then she leaves him high and dry with seemingly no notice and just dips. Uh, so if I'm uh, Dennis Boutsikaris, I think I'm out as well. I think if I'm Rich Schweikert, I don't I don't know that I necessarily need to to pursue Kim any further other than to potentially come in support of a Howard Hamlin down the line who re- who uh, finally connects that Kim is involved in something that's going on with him. Uh, I think that he, if anything, uh, you know, Rich Schweikert could be a reluctant character witness against Kim at this I point love that. in time. I love that. And I mean, of course, that that is true. And he knows a little bit about Jimmy. Uh, Cliff Maine, on the other hand, is going to be uh, is positioning himself to be a victim of both Kim and Jimmy in different ways. He got to be on the business end of Jimmy's not flushing toilets and playing bagpipes and just ruining the life at Davis in Maine. Uh, and he's got that great scene with Jimmy where he's like, Jimmy, just let me ask you this. Like, I did everything for you. I bought you that desk. I did that. Why? Why did you do any of this? And, you know, all of that. And, and he ultimately says, I think you're an asshole, Jimmy. Like, Poor Cliff Maine has already been victimized by Jimmy. He's now being victimized by Kim. Uh, he is a double victim in that way. Uh, and he's seen the business end of both of their methods. Uh, the Kim one is, I think, even more wounding. Yes, Cliff stuck his neck out for Jimmy a couple of times uh, and had some faith in him and wanted to. There, there's a world where that would have worked, uh, where that where Cliff could have given him the, the approval that Chuck 
never did uh, and helped him develop as a lawyer in a way. Uh, maybe Jimmy was never going to be capable of that. Sure. Uh, but that is a thing that 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 existed between Cliff and Jimmy. Uh, the stuff between Cliff uh, and Kim is different, but similar in terms of he has the opportunity to really shepherd her around and be a mentor and be the connection that she needs to really take her off in a way that Howard was not willing to do. Uh, and so there are some of the echoes there. But really, the fact that Cliff has been victimized by both of them is just heartbreaking to me. Poor Horrible. Cliff May. Yeah. Poor yep. Cliff May. He just wants to play guitar and mellow out, you know? Right, he does. He's like Jackson Maine in that way. He really uh, is like Jackson Maine in yeah, that way. Uh, Kim, to her credit, I will say, is very excited about this opportunity, right? She goes to Jimmy's office, which, by the way, Josh, how we th what do we think about the decor in this office? This Hilarious. is not the Saul Goodman office. Hilarious. Well, it absolutely is, like, structurally. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's, like, eventually uh, resignation that they have to, you know, uh, you know, uh, gussy it up the way that they do. I guess it's like an anti-gussying is what they are going to do down the line when it is in the condition that it is in for Breaking Bad. Or if they are just kind of, like, forced into this position because of all of the vandalism that occurs to all of the stuff that uh like all of like the furniture is like stripped down for parts uh at a certain point in time but my gosh there's couches everywhere there's seats everywhere kim's like oh it's very classy francesca's so proud of it i've got a pair of water features coming soon for serenity uh boy do you <laughs> boy do you <laughs> Not uh, for the serenity, with, unfortunately. The scene, with, the scene with Francesca and Kim is great because it doesn't need to happen. Like, this didn't need to happen, but I'm really glad that it did because I think that um, Jimmy was always the one who was psyched that Francesca was there, and Kim was a little bit more the person who was like, I would really love somebody who is more, like, legal-minded uh, as our person here, but I think Francesca was probably uh, always somebody who admired Kim more than she admired Jimmy and enjoyed working with Kim more than she worked uh, enjoyed working with Jimmy. So I, I think that there's there's some shades of the past here, but also like this sort of like this sort of like gesturing at some semblance of normalcy in this scene when Francesca's like congratulating Kim on the wedding and she's like just trying to be like a good normal person of like you registered anywhere, I'll get you something like you know and she's like no it was pretty low key. And I think like that even like, like speaks to not that like, you know, uh, you, you have to have like a huge celebration to get married by any stretch of the imagination, but the way in which Kim and Jimmy got married, I don't think it's too heavy to say that it was pretty toxic uh, yeah. and, and happened under like really uh, bizarre, if not outright problematic circumstances. And right. so I think like that, like, these two things are brushing up against each other in this scene uh, in a way that I that I find uh, like very subtle, uh, but fascinating and really good. And a scene that we did not necessarily need to have. But I'm, I'm glad that we do have this moment between Kim and Francesca. I think the marriage thing is the, the big takeaway for me, too. Uh, and it served as a great reminder of the fact that that marriage was so interestingly conceived as you put it like the circumstances it comes from you put it as toxic uh, and i agree with that like it 100 like it that's where it comes from is a very toxic place 
Uh, and, it, and it's it was very much a product of, well, we could either get we could either break up or double down on this. And if we double down on this, it'll give us criminal protection, too. Uh, and it's wow. That's where you're at with this. Right. And so for Francesca to be like, uh, where are you registered? Poor Francesca, just seemingly pretty innocent bystander in everything that goes on or coming into things with the best of intentions with her water features and her molding uh, and the office looking as it does, the relaxing elements of it, instantly a bad fit for the situation and just really tragic for, for poor Francesca. I hope she comes out of this situation scot-free in terms of the law and with a big stack of money for everything that she had to suffer at the hands of uh, not working at the BMV anymore because this ain't the BMV uh, and it isn't even what the office will become. And just that little moment of seeing the office and her having her talk to Kim makes it all the more tragic, even for Francesca, the situation that we end up in, in Breaking Bad. Yeah, with, but with, we with Saul. We also have to acknowledge that uh, in the same way, if like Kim is making her choices and Jimmy's making his choice, Francesca is going to make her choices, too. You know, yeah. she, she is going to continue to choose to walk this path and squeeze out Walter White for money. And all that's what the money stuff, is for. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. so uh, but but for me, like, I do think that like the some of the magic of this show is like is not dissimilar to something like Succession. Uh, where like I'm just feeling enormous empathy for these highly problematic people, right. you know, <laughs> like, these people who are causing actual damage, are participants in actual uh, meaningful damage to other people, whether it's large, um, like uncountably large swaths of people or individual lives, like Howard Hamlin. Um, but yet somehow, like because I get to see why they are also in pain and how that informs why they inflict pain upon others that I just feel uh, a, an overwhelming sense of agony watching the show. Uh, that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. It is uh, good stuff. Are, are you worried in a similar way or do you feel a similar way about our friends, the film crew here, Josh? Because nah, they film just seem be to be fine. They're fine. They're, they're fine. fine, right? They yeah. seem to have no taint film crew... of any of the work they've done. <laughs> well, you're not looking close enough. Oh, uh, the, the film crew uh, is hilarious. Uh, and as, as is, uh, what's this guy's name? Is it is it uh, Lenny? is the name of the guy who's going to be posing as the judge. Sorry that it's not Mr. Acker. Uh, yeah, that, that would have been a real bummer, real letdown. Could have been, could have been. Could have been, would have been great, but probably would have required too much like emotional poignance with Kim that uh, they want to get at elsewhere. And it's almost going to be like too much at that point if you're bringing yeah. Acker in as well. You have to have a scene there. Uh, so I, I think ultimately it's okay that they're not going with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're trying to pick out mustaches. This guy, Lenny just wants to like get deep into the character. <laughs> Jimmy's like, no, this is like, uh, this isn't real life. It's like a reality script, like stick to the script. No improv. Docudrama. Uh, yeah. Docudrama. <laughs> and Kim wants to talk to Jimmy, but we can talk about it later. She says, which is just yet another way in which like, sometimes she's just so deferential to his like emotional energy. Yeah. Um, or and, his ploys or his cons like the con can take the front seat right to the back seat of the the real emotional heft of the offer from Cliff Maine. Let, let's just deal with the con. Let's have fun with that. We don't need to worry about the other legitimate thing we could possibly do. Uh, let's just focus on the illegitimacy for one. Mm -hmm. And so he's going to just say, no, let's talk about this now. You know, we'll take 10. Uh, and there is this great aside uh, where uh, the the um, what's the name of the of the woman who's part of the film crew? I think they call just, her. I think they call her makeup girl, or I, yeah. I can't remember the character's name, but it's something like that. She she says to Lenny, she's like, "You're doing great," and Lenny goes, "I am." 
am, aren't I? I am, aren't I? <laughs> so great. This such show a, loves such a small moment that I loved. Yeah, it's, they love that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, then like Jimmy is like so explosively excited for Kim, and that's contagious. And for like the first time, she kind of like allows herself to be explosively excited about it as well. The problem is, is that this is gonna this meeting um, with the Jackson Mercer Foundation is gonna happen on D Day, and Jimmy says that's not an issue. Uh, Eisenhower was not on Omaha Beach. You're fine. Again, Omaha. Ah! Uh, and so he's very supportive about this, and they're both super happy about it. Um, and, man, uh, that's just so sad in contrast to where they're going. Truly. Like, this is a moment that could have been the culmination of very everything different. that Kim has struggled with and everything that Kim has put forward in terms of the work she's done pro bono, the difficulty of walking away from the guarantees at Schweikert and Coakley and the safety of that uh, and the assurances that it provided all of that. This could have been the climax and the, the happiest time for Kim because it was a proof of a success on her proof of concept on what needed to be done to give quality legal representation across the board to anyone who needed it. Uh, and yet it is tempered by the fact that it is so directly linked and connected to D-Day and the end of the con plan to the shortcut way, uh, the way to do this uh, in an un untoward or underhanded or unethical way. Uh, it, they're both coming at the same time. It's fascinating to think about the way those two ships are coming into port at literally the exact same time uh, to perhaps effectuate the same ending. Uh, but in a very, very different way and a different approach. So, uh, so I was very, I was very conflicted in a way uh, because I appreciate the 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 true uh, joy that that Jimmy and Kim have in that scene. I'm just disappointed that 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 didn't cause them to say, "Do we need to go through with this?" I, right. I wish Jimmy had. I mean, at this point, Jimmy's so in love with the con. It's very similar, I think, when Kim walks into that back of that office and Jimmy's got actors and he's got the film crew. That's exactly what it was like with the Mesa Verde play when they were filming the anti Mesa Verde commercials uh, and they were doing it in the front of the nail salon at that time. And Kim walked in at that point with news thinking, uh, I'm going to just give Mr. Acker money. I'm going to pull the plug on this. And Jimmy was like, no way. The play's too beautiful. I'm going to go for it. Here we have yet again, Kim coming with news that could cause them to pull the plug on the plan. And in this this instance they don't even discuss doing so uh right. unlike the yeah. mesa verde situation this is just all hands on deck it doesn't even matter that this could conceivably change our future and change that we need to do this with howard at all uh maybe we can wait on the sandpiper money and that'll be a boost to what we need to do later uh in fact it isn't even brought up they right. just blow right past it well whichever you know whatever happened in that uh that hotel room at the end of season five where it seemed like uh jimmy had uh was was having you know a, a big like crisis of conscience in terms of like is he is he the the void that is going to consume kim wexler does everything he touched turn to to ash uh that that moment of like introspection or like self-interrogation that and, and whatever could have sprung forth from that doesn't exist right now right uh, and he is in like the just like in like the giddy glee of looking at mustaches fake mustaches to wear and wax yep um and, and Kim picks out the mustache i mean she's the one who's like it's sure sure but i but i also and I, not to get too far ahead of ourselves but like by the end of the episode yes it is kim who u-turns and chooses to come back to albuquerque when it looks like she's you know like uh it feels like a quarter mile to santa fe yeah uh, that you know she is the one who who physically chooses to do that 
But Jimmy prods on that call at the end of the episode. And I don't think that he gets to escape um, culpability in um, her choice to, to, to come back. Um, you know, when he's saying, um, we'll pull the plug, we'll regroup when you get home tonight, right? Kim, are you listening to me? Right. And like right. you see his body language. And we have seen that from Jimmy so many different times where he's like, there's only there's another way we could go about this, but it's really not worth it. Like the, the you know, the lead up to um, to the to the Mesa Verde con, um, yeah. you know, he he throws that stuff out there. And whether it is um, intentionally manipulative or subconsciously manipulative, it is manipulative. Right. Uh, and so this is this, uh, you know, they, they are enablers of each other. It is this sort of like parasitic thing. Um, or I guess it's like this, like symbiotic thing to yes. a certain degree yep. uh, of like, they are, um, you know, they are, they are feeding each other. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I it, it is definitely worth like, you know, fully calling like Kim chooses to turn the car around, but I don't want it to be escaped. Uh, this idea that Jimmy is like asking her to turn the car around effectively. He says yeah. like, you know, we'll regroup tomorrow and we'll, we'll find another time. But you know that's not what's underneath that. There's just that's no interesting. way. Yeah. I didn't necessarily have the same read, but you saying it now, I definitely do not disagree. Uh, yeah. And I will be, when I rewatch it again before the feedback show. Couldn't see uh, it any I, other way when I watched that scene. That's interesting. Uh, it, where, like, I, I've seen that look, and I've seen those actions from Jimmy. There, that's the look I was looking yep. for. Like yep. I've, see, I've seen that from him <laughs> too many times to see it any other way. And I don't even necessarily think that, like, that's what's on his mind of like, I'm going to get her to turn the car around. I don't think that that's it. But I definitely think that there is a vibe from him of, I hope she turns the car around. Uh, and that that can be so effusive that somebody like Kim, who, as we just said, like can be very deferential to, uh, to Jimmy's uh, emotional energy in times like these, um, can hear that and can right. sense that and will react to that in a way that Jimmy has seen before and knows that she'll fall into the pattern again. The whole yeah. thing is tragic and toxic. Importantly, Jimmy does not say, but hey, once you nail it with the foundation, we don't even need to go through with this. Right. Maybe this is a sign from the heavens that we that we were that we didn't need to do this. Uh, maybe this is uh, maybe it's for the best. He doesn't go into those Never. details. He basically just says, we'll regroup. We'll live to fight another day and we'll come up with a way to do it again. He doesn't say it, it's a sign we don't need to do it. He basically says, we'll do it. But just focus on that for now. Dot, dot, dot. So. I, I'm coming around to your point of view on this for sure. Uh, and I think we've we've covered the end, but we need to get to the end because, uh, Josh, we have to go to Germany. We have to oh. we have to go. We have to call for a conference call uh, and then we have to go some stargazing. We've got a little bit more to cover here. Indeed, we do. So let's go to Germany, Antonio, uh, in this uh, horror movie scene in yeah. the middle of this, like this, like literal horror movie scene, this slasher movie scene in the middle of an emotional slasher movie of an episode. Uh, and Giancarlo Esposito has said in uh, his many terrific interviews that, again, uh, you should definitely seek out if you're into this kind of stuff. Uh, it's his belief that this was the scene that this was like the primary scene that he thinks was the reason why this was the episode that he got. Not even just because like Gus Fring doesn't appear in this episode, so he's able to really focus as a filmmaker, um, but because the uh, this like horror scene between Casper, uh, the soon-to-be friendly ghost, uh, and Lalo Salamanca uh, is unlike anything that Giancarlo has ever filmed before, and that it is uh, like a, a you know a very tense 
scene of violence that is just unlike anything that he has uh, worked on uh, other, you know, outside of being an actor. And that this thing that really excited Giancarlo Esposito as a filmmaker was this idea that we don't know what's going to happen to Lala Salamanca, that there is a moment in this scene when he is like axed into the ribs that you think that Lalo is just like going to like kind of like uh, have like uh, one of those like totally random shaggy dog story uh, type of ending uh, where he's just going to get got by Casper in Germany and that you need to feel that tension so that when he gets the upper hand, uh, you're somehow surprised by that too. I thought this whole thing was really effective, Antonio. It was so well done. You said, you know, he pointed out that Giancarlo Esposito talked about how he's not really done stuff like this, but throughout his interviews, he has a lot of fun ways that he connected to the material, um, some of which not so fun, uh, talking about his childhood, for example, uh, and maybe if they knew that he had a, a childhood that he'd had, they would have connect, he, they would have felt he would have connected to the Kim material. Um, he had a relationship that didn't go well and that he right. ultimately separated uh, with, you know, with love, uh, it seemed like, from his spouse, uh, but that they thought maybe with the Howard material, that connected, uh, and they thought maybe because he's Gus Fring and because he He's this horrifying, meticulous, uh, terrifying man that he would have a lot of fun chewing up this uh, this scene as a director, as Giancarlo Esposito, uh, the guy who plays Gus Fring. And I, I don't know if they, he was right about why they chose him for this work. It could also be that there was just no Gus in this episode, which surely played a big factor. But he was so good. This was so well done. Uh, the way the camera lingers on some of the implements of destruction, uh, like the the saws, the old saws that are in there, uh, jars of just what look like maybe nails and uh, pieces of metal that look like improvised explosive devices. It, there's just mayhem uh, and and murder uh, lurking around every corner of this barn. Uh, and, of course, just so uh, disorienting to take us out of the brown deserts of New Mexico and put us in this lush green forest uh, and have somebody splitting wood. It felt like a different show. It really did. So uh, I just uh, full marks on the way that this scene was executed. I agree as well. I thought, is this it for Lalo? Does he meet his end in Germany randomly? That would be crazy. There's no way that's what happened. It happens so fast. And I, I, at first I thought that this was a critique of the way that the, the scene was shot. And ultimately I've come to feel like it's a feature is that it, it happens so fast that I actually thought that he got like full on axed in the side. Uh, like I thought that he got like, uh, like he got like the sharp end of the thing and it didn't it, like it was, it was filmed in such a way that it was, it, it happened quickly and it was, it was dark and it felt like a little nebulous. And then he's able to like talk enough that I'm like, he didn't actually get stabbed. Did he like, is he dying right now? Is he is confessing this stuff? Uh, and, uh, like, I, I think that that confusion that's happening in that moment of like, could this really be it? And if so, why am I watching what I'm watching? Why is this ending here? Has you off balance enough to be in the shoes of Casper, who as a reminder is one of the people who was working on the super lab with Ziegler. Obviously he is specifically the guy who stands up to Mike and says uh, that Werner was worth, quote-unquote, 50 of you. Uh, so he was a huge Werner Ziegler stand, the OG, before any of us came to be Werner Ziegler stands. Right. Uh, so, so he is a guy who really stood up um, against uh, the, you know, the, the ways of, um, of, of this organized crime in New Mexico. And here he is, uh, now uh, no longer able to stand because right. of this uh, organized crime in New Mexico. So I feel like we are very much in his feet 
uh, in this scene, uh, only to get our, you know, foot cut out from under us uh, when uh, we're in the the middle of all this confusion and chaos. And was there a a razor behind the card? I, I, uh, until we've talked, (laughs) kept thinking that Lalo was just the king of paper cuts. (laughs) Uh, I was like, and also that uh, Casper was a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of like of a weakling, a little wimpy to be like, wow, that paper cut really took me out. No, you know, like, I a know razor. a paper cut sucks, but uh, okay. Yeah, there's a razor. It wasn't a. It wasn't a business card dipped in lemon juice. <laughs> uh, yeah, he got him. He got him good. No gambit yeah. here. Uh, it was a razor blade and a foot. Then yeah, later he lost. gambited and him. He did. Not for nothing. Uh, he charged Casper, that card up. Casper does know uh, Frank. Me. Casper knows Frank, uh, but only from one passing scene, as far as we saw which is the same scene that Casper might have seen Lalo if he was paying close attention, uh, which is when Casper and Kai and all the rest of Werner's boys had to pose like they were working on the chiller uh, while Fring led Lalo and, uh, and Juan Bolsa around to, tr- to try to create a cover story for what was happening with Werner and what his crew was doing. Casper's in that scene in the background. If you watch it again, you can see his face. You can see him looking at Lalo and Gus. So if he uh, he may not have clocked it in the moment in the barn, uh, but with perhaps further interrogation, he would remember this. He would remember, yes, you were in the scene with Frank, that guy. We weren't doing what we said. We were doing it at another site. It was under a laundry. He may remember some of these details. So I'm guessing we won't see more with Casper. Uh, I'm guessing the next time we see Lalo, he will be back in New Mexico. Right, which is good because we can choose to believe that Casper survives this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's Schrodinger's Casper. Until we find out one way or the other, he's alive and he's dead at the same time. Uh, but he's there dead, are, by the way. He's for yes, sure dead. He's for sure dead. Foot, yeah. or, foot or not. Yeah, yeah. He, he, gone. he gone. I mean, tie it up before you bleed to death. We're going to have a talk. Yeah. But once the talk is over, I'll just bleed you. Once Lalo to told death. him his real name, that's the end of it. That's the correct. Death certificate it's over. Signed. It's done. Yeah. 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 So Casper is going to die. Lalo's going to come back. And look, when, when Lalo comes back to New Mexico, people are waiting for him. People are watching. Uh, as long as he doesn't go down, was it Alameda Street? Or I, I don't remember what the name of yeah, the street Alameda was. Street, yes. Alameda Street. Alameda Street. As long as he doesn't go down that one. But uh, people are watching. People are waiting. And of course, it's Mike Ehrman Trout. Uh, and like we said, Probably one of the tenderest scenes uh, we're going to get from Mike over the course of either series, maybe the most tender, other than his emotional uh, wreckage in 5-0. We see Mike uh, basically stargazing with Kaylee and Stacy. The quickest stargazing appointment ever. They were out there ever. for like two minutes. Five seconds. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very, very quick. Uh, they, they, uh, they may have clocked Jupiter, the gas giant. That's not very nice. <laughs> uh, one of uh, one of the least uh, anticipated uh, pleasures of Better Call Saul for me, Antonio, was hearing Mike Ehrman Trout make a fart joke. Yeah, not not on my bingo card. And, yeah. uh, you know, you eat enough pimento cheese. Yeah, we know uh, what happens. Jupiter is the largest planet in our solar system, bigger than Earth. It's a gas giant. Well, that's not very nice. Pop, pop. Yeah, pop, pop. Stop making fart jokes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Low gas giant. Fruit. Yeah. I not not for nothing. I basically made the same joke when I was watching it. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not about Mike. About myself. Uh, yeah. The uh, watching watching that it like we talked about earlier. Just another humanizing scene. Another humanizing moment. Reminding us why Mike stays in the game. Why Mike yes. is do- is doing what he's doing. I mean, not for nothing. He's not in Chattanooga, but 
she's got a very nice telescope there. They have a very nice house that Mike uh, Mike's work is paid for. I think anytime we start to wonder, like, why is Mike doing this? Why is Mike working with Gus? Why is this happening? Why is he so willing? We have to think about scenes like this, which really center and recenter uh, where Mike's priorities are and remind us why Mike does what he it's does. It's a job. Yep. It's a job. It's not it's not um, an express. It's not a dying man's expression of ego, right? right? It's not a dying man's expression of self-importance. And this has to be my legacy and I have to leave my mark on the world and I'm important. Damn it. It's none of that. It's none of that. Guy- and this is for my family. This is for his family. Like this That's is, it. this is, you know, it's a job. Yep. It pays extraordinarily well. Uh, and it is going towards my family and yep. whether or not that justifies him being involved in, I don't know, murdering people. Not quite. I don't think, um, but it gets you into Mike Ehrmantraut's headspace for sure. Uh, and I, and I thought Jonathan Banks did such a great job of, um, just, uh, you know, like the, just the, the sweetness in that, in that scene. Uh, and again, Giancarlo Esposito gives us some, uh, uh, some great, uh, comments about how all of this came together and how he knows Jonathan Banks so well over their time across the two shows and how he's just not a guy who suffers fools easily and you just have to talk to him very plainly. Yeah. Uh, and then he just needs to be afforded the space to act because he feels the character and he connects with the character so well. Um, so really, 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 really lovely scene. I, I also it. love... I also love that it comes like right after the scene where uh, he and Tyrus like it's just like clear there's no love lost between these guys ever. No, uh, which yeah, is I mean Mike has, surpl- has supplanted Tyrus, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Like Tyrus was was Gus's guy before Mike was Gus's guy, is my guess, and yes. that that can't make anybody very happy, and no. they always are are at odds for sure. And I like that, and I like Mike willing to pull off his own tail and protection before he pulls it off of uh, his family, even though it's far less likely that they're going to be involved. The cousins had targeted them before, so they are known. Uh, and if a connection is made, uh, they could be targeted again. So a distant uh, likelihood, but uh, Mike is not willing to budge on that. No. Um, all right, so let's get back to everything going on with Jimmy and Kim. There is quickly the Francesca scene where she's going to get the meeting code for the Sandpiper meeting. Right. I think we've touched on that. I think that this is, this is like another way in which, um, you know, again, like I don't think that she's going to forget what a Hamlin is, uh, you know, this feels like a, like a, a U-turn of sorts for Francesca as well, uh, is this moment where she's like, is this legal? And Jimmy just like bullying her into doing it, you know, uh, like, uh, who's the lawyer, you or me? Uh, so the whole thing, my mom, Marnie Stuber, like all of this is bullshit. And this kind of stuff is going to get easier for her, unfortunately. Um, it's very hard right now, but it's going to get easier for her as she moves forward. Indeed. Um, also, uh, clean up in aisle nine. Uh, going on right now um, beyond this uh, Jimmy and Kim are going to have one final night before D-Day D-Day's Eve on Omaha Beach as it were uh, as they are going to have uh, some wine on the lawn of HHM uh, where they're parked outside of the HHM conference room which is going to be the battlefield where uh, where everything is going to go down the next day uh and i would posit antonio that this will be like the last great night of jimmy and kim's life together 
You would think. We certainly would think. It really does seem like uh, a celebratory. Uh, the 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 last moment. I, I'm I'm on point with this as well. Like this is about as good as it's going to get, as sweet as it's going to get outside of the HHM conference room there. Uh, and and we're headed in a, in a bad direction. We could have been headed in a better direction. We could have been headed to Santa Fe. We could have been headed to the lieutenant governor. The legitimacy of it all. We make a U-turn. Uh, so this night has to be repurposed in in the view of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it all goes poorly as soon as the next day. She's going to have victory in Santa Fe while we have victory in Albuquerque. It's going to be worthy of getting the uh, the Zafiro tequila, four ninety five for a bottle. Just one problem. There's the judge. He has a broken arm, uh, and that is flying in direct uh, direct conflict with all of the photos that they've created, everything that they have mocked up here for this plan to make it look like Jimmy has paid off the judge. It is a complete disaster and enough that Jimmy is going to call Kim and try to call it off. And she does not want it to be called off. And I think we've talked this scene through uh, a good amount already that I really do view. This as not just Kim making a choice, but Jimmy's making a choice as well. Uh, and these two people who are inextricably linked to each other's um, worst habits uh, are, are feeding, uh, you know, total energy vampire style right now, Antonio, as <laughs> we are driving towards next week's mid season finale in like the deadliest of ways. Uh, I'm so, so, so nervous about where we're going. It, in that, and even saying that it, it feels like it still could work um, there. The, the acker part is, or not the acker part, the judge part is maybe off the table. They will have to improvise and improvising their great meticulously laid out post-it note plan, uh, which you can certainly freeze frame and which we'll talk about more on the feedback show. Yep. Uh, I didn't think there was anything really on there that was too out of bounds that we hadn't seen yet. Uh, I think the plan would have been uh, executed to their desire or their need, but they had not uh, planned for the broken arm. Uh, but Kim's going to come back and she's going to try to make it happen the same day anyway, jeopardizing, of course, probably ruining the Santa Fe chance and maybe putting her in a position where uh, they shouldn't be doing this. That It's going against their plan and it probably will end poorly. But there's a world where it succeeds. There's a world where it succeeds. They're very smart. They're very capable uh, and they could succeed and the fallout could come later. Uh, all these are possibilities I want to discuss on the feedback show. Totally. Uh, I am going to watch that end scene again and try to see if I can uh, see exactly how you're seeing it, because I think it, it makes a lot of sense and sounds extremely compelling to me. So uh, that's where I'm at with it for sure. We will revisit as far as the logistics of the feedback show. Uh, I think it'll probably be later on. Uh, a Friday afternoon for me as I'm traveling, yep. uh, but I should be able to record uh, at some point on Friday and we should be able to get it up, I think, later Friday nice, afternoon, if that sounds easy right. weekend listening uh, yep. for, for the folks here on Post Show Recap. So get that feedback in. You've got extra time to send it in. BCS at postshowrecaps.com. That's BCS at postshowrecaps.com. Uh, and the same uh, requests for good etiquette uh, as before remain in place here. BCS at postyourrecaps.com. You can also tweet at us at Round Howard, at AC Mazar with the same amount of Z's and R's as before. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed yet. Uh, and you can hang out with us in the Poster Recaps patron discord when you sign up to be a patron of Poster Recaps by going to patreon.com slash Recaps to support the podcast. We greatly, greatly appreciate anybody who is considering doing that and has already done that so antonio next stop for us is not a u-turn we are driving straight forward to the episode six feedback show on our way to the mid-season six 
finale. Anything else that you want to add here, Uncle Tonio? That's it for me for now. Uh, I am looking forward to the feedback show this week for sure because we're we're living, Josh, in the the time before we know before we know how the season is going to wrap up. I love uh, it. Before we know whether the plan will work, what happens, what becomes of Lalo Salamanca. We will only get to live in this time for the very briefest of moments. So I want to savor it. I want to enjoy all that. I'm excited about it. Uh, And I'm uh, my only thing I I do wonder, like, I don't think it's going to happen. But do we begin the finale with a gene scene so that we can set something up? What are our cliffhangers going to be uh, as we go into uh, the midseason break or the season break, if you will? Uh, I, I would love to hear some feedback about that. What do we think cliffhanger wise? we might put on the table that we could look to follow through right. on later. Um, what is I think going to be, what is going to be better call Saul's version of Hank Schrader on the toilet? You know, like that's what I, what I want to know. Cause maybe it'll like be Hank Schrader on the toilet again, but in a different <laughs> way somehow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Howard on the toilet could be uh, where we're going uh, next. Too many lattes. Uh, all right. Ooh, we will chanter. be back. We will be. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. That's the toilet. Was that the toilet that Hank was on in uh, breaking bad? <laughs> Uh, you never know. Who can uh, all right. We'll be back uh, as soon as humanly possible with our episode six feedback show. Until then, everybody, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.